Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont and Professor Richard LaDuke explore the early history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the life and teachings of Prophet Joseph Smith. They examine the original historical sources and provide context for events of the past. They approach the history of the Church with faith, expertise, and humor. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, Professor Richard Leduc. Hello, Garrett. In this week's podcast, we wanted to talk about the restoration of the Melchizedek Priesthood. But before we do, we wanted to read a couple of emails. Our first uh, email comes to us from Elder Whipple, uh, a missionary in parts unknown. You're very wise to keep that a secret from us. That's right. Uh, I'll try to keep this short because it's my P-Day and I have better things to do than to write commentary to you about your podcast. We would agree. First of all, you do. You You have much better things to do. Much better things. Uh, I would like to say that I do enjoy your podcast. I did get it approved to listen to it in our downtime. That's important because the last missionary who wrote to us was tasked with eliminating unauthorized media and instead of eliminating us started listening to us. So <laughs> you're one step ahead, Elder Whipple. That that assistant to the president's coming. It's coming for you. Your playful banter is always enjoyable, and you too often make me laugh out loud. I also have deeply loved the subjects of your podcast so far. I find it very respectable that you would both dedicate so much t- so much of your time and talents to helping solve our questions and strengthen our faith in the prophet joseph smith and infinitely more important jesus christ it might help to know that your podcast hasn't just helped me strengthen my faith but has also helped me be able to better help others solve their own concerns about church history i think what has helped me the most is professor dirkmott's extensive knowledge of other religions since we are better able to see where others are coming from and what they're bringing to our conversations and lessons. Well, that's very, that's very nice. I noticed that he didn't say anything about my understanding of, uh, and my learning on the, uh, Contra cheat codes for the Nintendo. Do you have those? I do. Is it up, down, right, left? It's up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, A, B, or B, A, and start. You know, Super C was a lot easier. Uh, I've always thought that. Super C's cheat code was just up, down, right, left, A, B, select, start. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So he didn't mention that, um, but I wanted to make sure that I got that in there. So a million thanks for myself and others, and other tens of missionaries who... (laughs) (laughs) We have tens of listeners. So my son is currently on a mission in Barcelona, and uh, he uh, doesn't listen. Um, He says he does, uh, but then when I push him on it and ask him for what he liked about it, he's like, oh, you know, just, you know, all of it. It's it's really good. I just thought like the whole part where you like talked and stuff... Yeah, that's pretty like, much how it I, Especially when you mentioned like the church. It was funny, though, when we got to talk with him this last week, uh, I asked him if he got a chance to listen to the latest episode that I that I sent to him, and he, he didn't get to it, uh, but uh, John, by the way, did a special um, fireside for their mission. Oh, nice. His daughter is in their mission and did a special fireside, and I'm like, oh, okay, well... Actually, you know what? I respect that. Uh, yeah, uh, no, I would that also rather listen to John. By the way, than anything. Absolutely. So wait. So his daughter's in Andrew's mission. Apparently. All right. How great is that? How about shout that? out to you sister? By the way, who yeah. also isn't listening to this podcast. Well, 
Well, it would be unimproved probably <laughs> from their mission. Um, uh, something, something, fall asleep. I lost my place. All right, here we go. Uh, I do have a question about something a friend of ours brought up in church history. We are currently working with a family, and the father talked with the missionaries long ago, back when they used flip charts. That's what we used so yeah that's very funny long ago meaning yeah very very long we were on our missions which he said he liked more than preach my gospel teach by the spirit method so great work for your generation that's um it's a little condescending elder whipple i'm gonna go ahead i mean we is it possible that we could have both had the charts (laughs) and the spirit or nope okay he told us that he was going to join the church but then found a video online that someone had recorded of the endowment session It seemed strange to him, so he asked a friend in the church why there is so much secrecy and also so much similarity to other religious ceremonies. The member, he asked, replied that the reason why it seems so strange is because... I'm sorry. I'm going to try and... This with a straight face. Uh, It's so strange because in the days of Joseph Smith, the Illuminati... So this was a member that they took to this person's house. The Illuminati attempted to infiltrate the church and steal the secrets and expose them, but failed. He goes on. And that they continue trying to infiltrate the church in order to destroy it. That got my companion and I very curious. I bet it did, Elder Whipple, about the involvement of a cabal-esque group, maybe even the Illuminati in church history. I was hoping that you would have some insights on that and would also love to hear your thoughts on conspiracy, conspiracy theories in general. I know you have touched on conspiracies in the past, but a full-depth episode would be a real treat to listen to. I promise to download it multiple times. Ah, there you go. You understand how this this, Yeah, this yeah now you know how you got on, on the air. Thanks for all you do. Everyone who listens to this podcast comes away better for it. It's very oh, kind. It's very kind. Way. Yeah. Wow. I don't even know where to start. You know, I can take that a lot of ways. There, there are so many responses that I could give to that, but I think... Um, I'm going to throw this one over to Richard. Okay, so uh, this was several years ago. Um, there was a special conference for, for bishops. Uh, on the I, Illuminati? <laughs> yes, on the Illuminati. <laughs> uh, that's how big a deal it yeah, is. It's, and, uh, it's, it's got its hooks into everything. And so uh, our bishop was unable to attend, and I was asked to go in his, go in his place. And this was something that was um, presided over by President Packer, and uh, Elder Anderson was also there. And uh, we got a chance to ask questions. And I raised my hand and I asked what I thought was a very thoughtful and, and deep question about uh, the Melchizedek priesthood. And President Packer's response was, um, uh, you know, I've done a lot of these and I get a lot of questions. Some are very difficult to answer and some are very easy. That question was very easy. So I'm going to go ahead and throw this over to, I don't remember who the Area 70 was, but throw it over to the Area 70 to go ahead and answer that question, which um, made me feel like my question was, you know, so stupid. Not very good. Not, well, yeah, it was obviously yeah. terrible. What did you ask a question like, so, like, like Elder Packer, like, do people, like, get the Melchizedek priesthood? <laughs> Or like, is it like important like, so it, for salvation? Do you, do you think it's like important that people get ordained? That was that was probably how he heard the question. <laughs> anyway, so um, so to that to to answer that, I I think pretty simply is um no, 
yeah. No, there's not a secret cabal Illuminati group of the Illuminati that is attempting to infiltrate the church. Who is this member? Is the real well, question. Well, so now, first, first of all, I will say we've all had experiences on our mission where we're teaching somebody and we have a member with us who's well-intentioned and so kind to drive us to wherever it was. And then we're trying to teach them about the plan of salvation or the restoration of the church or whatever. And then they're like, elder, elder, elder. Yeah. Well, yeah, that I had that very thing happen. You did. I mean, I have two stories that I'd like to share. <laughs> So if someone wants to hear more of the meat of what we're going to talk about, you may need to fast forward this. Yeah. Or, you know, probably just click to the end. I yeah. don't know. I mean, I don't know. Garrett's where mom recently complained that it took 15 minutes to get to the topic. So uh, Renee, reason, go ahead and skip in. The reason why that's concerning to me is I'm not sure what else my mom's doing. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I don't know, you know, she has just, Appointment after appointment after appointment, she can only squeeze in her son talking for 10 minutes at a time, and if, and if I don't get right to the point, that's it. Well, so um, first, uh, I, I might have shared both of these stories before, but first story, I was, I, I was on my mission in Wisconsin. I don't know where Elder Whipple is, but it kind of sounds like Wisconsin <laughs> because of what that member said, but... Um, I was on team ups with a member and no one ever listened to us in Wisconsin ever. Uh, so we had a, a media referral, which was uh, back when we used to give away free VHS tapes to people. Um, and people would see, you know, like a, a video of the lamb of God, you know, they'd see a commercial for it and they'd call, would you like representatives to come deliver that to you? And then we we'd get the referral and then we'd go knock on the door and most people just wanted their free Bible and they, yeah. yeah. Thank you for the Bible. Please don't talk to me at all. Um, but this guy was very nice guy. Let us inside. And so I was like, well, we have a message we'd like to share with you as well. And he's like, Oh, well, okay. So already this is better than 99.999% of literally everything that happened on my mission. He didn't yell at us. He invited us inside. He said we could talk. So already, yeah, this is, I mean, I'm right. He's a golden, he's well, a in golden my mind, contact. I'm already writing my, my welcome home talk about how I'm going to mention this guy, <laughs> how he let us inside and didn't call us curse words. Um, and, uh, so I started to teach the, the, back then the first discussion. So I was teaching about Joseph Smith's experience and, uh, it, it's actually very powerful. It, it, like the spirit's really strong in the room. And I, and I start to tell how Joseph, you know, what Joseph said, you know, that he saw God in Jesus. And, and this guy is really fascinated. Like he, you can tell by his eyes, he's really listening. And he's even like, so, so you're telling me, you're telling me he saw God. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that was this experience. And so we're right in the middle of him asking a follow-up question. The member who's with me in a very loud voice that I'll try not to replicate too much. Cause I don't need everyone to have their, their car stereos blown out. Puts his hand across my face <laughs> and says, Elder, 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 just stop. Just stop. Just stop. Then he turns back to the guy and he says, Patriarchal blessings. That's all you need to know. Patriarchal blessings. And the guy says, Oh, what? It's like a fortune teller of your life. 
That's what it is. If you get baptized, you can have a patriarchal blessing too. And then he asked us to leave. So uh, that's one experience. Should I tell the other one or well, is it too let's, long no, already? Yeah, well, let's, let's you know, not to make Renee mad. We'll push that one off to next week. Is that uh, – the day Bernie came inside. The day Bernie came okay, inside. We'll, that to, we'll we'll tease uh, we'll tease him going. We to should a make CBS. that premium content. Yeah, that that is one of my favorite stories of all time. By but, the way, I want to thank everybody who has signed yes. up for the premium content. I mean, it it is awesome. Where are that, you at, Elder Whipple? What he's on a mission. Okay. Right. Oh man, boy, this is what happens when you bring a business PhD onto a free podcast. <laughs> the next thing you know, you're selling the the water cups that you drink. <laughs> the afternoon anyway um but we do want to thank everyone who's who's uh signed up for the premium content because that that is very helpful um and hopefully everyone enjoys that we've got some more american history and and uh, church history podcasts coming to people with the premium side as well but yes uh, as far as the illuminati goes i mean i'm sure that what's going on is you have a member who is not entirely sure what the answer to that question was. And look, in fairness to the member uh, who said that, uh, the actual Illuminati, like the Bavarian Illuminati back in the 1700s, one of their goals was to kind of pilfer membership from the Freemasonry societies that existed. And so maybe that's what they meant by that. I mean, the reality- I'm fairly confident that that's not what that person meant by okay. that. Well, I'm trying to give the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Not- um, but I, I, I think uh, this idea, this question, we, we, we kind of deal with this on a, a few previous episodes where we talk about Freemasonry. And that's usually what that, that uh, question around the temple ceremony surrounds. I mean, it is unfortunate that people will, you know, take something that's sacred to us and, uh, violate that 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 privacy and that that sacredness that we have in order to to mock and make fun of it, and that's well, that's kind of par for the course when it comes to uh, the way people treat Latter Day Saints. So, um, yeah, as far as the Illuminati, wow, no, and in fact, really, the Illuminati came to be this kind of catch-all for conspiracy theories. I mean, you ask the larger question about conspiracy theories, and. Americans love conspiracy theories. We, we just do. We always have, in fact. Um, we have a previous podcast that I think it's called American Culture or something, where we talk about the Boston Tea Party. This is not premium. This is one of our free ones, um, going all the way back. And the, it's a really good example of how people believed that there was a conspiracy when in a in fact there was just really 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 inept government so it's always kind of a catch between the two right is government so corrupt it controls everything or is it also that they're actually so bad at doing what they're supposed to do that that that's the reason why it seems like a conspiracy right i mean do you think that referee is deliberately not calling any fouls on my team or do I think that that 15-year-old referee just doesn't even know what any basketball fouls are because he just got pulled out of the crowd to do it? Um, conspiracy theories, though, there's several books where people actually chart and look at this because what are conspiracy theories used for? They're, they uh, they gain their traction um, to try to explain things that that 
seem to be an issue, but for but otherwise don't have a good explanation. And Masons were often the butt of these conspiracy theories. And uh, in fact, Latter-day Saints are as well. I mean, there was a, a huge conspiracy theory surrounding Latter-day Saint Danites, that there was a secret band of Mormons that went around murdering all of the apostates and whatnot. Well into the Utah period, newspapers would report that over and over and over again. Oh yes, the secret Danite bo- uh, you know, mobs are going around killing the people that are... I mean, as Brigham Young pointed out, well, if I had all the power that people claim that I do, then how is it that all these apostates are running around doing whatever they want to do? I mean... The, the idea that th- there certainly have been conspiracies throughout time. I mean, there certainly have been uh, uh, conspiracies that have existed. But this idea of this long-running conspiracy that controls all business, that controls all government, that never comes to light, that crosses every country border, I mean, there's just not evidence of that. Again, I'm not saying there's not conspiracies. There there certainly are. There are things that people, you know, combine together to try to gain power. Um, You know, you can see that with the effects of organized crime. I mean, that's a a conspiracy. Um, But the ones you usually hear are things like, you know, that, you know, George Washington was actually part of the Illuminati and he wasn't trying to create America. He was trying to further this secret satanic cult organization. I mean, it's it. People are drawn to them, especially when they feel like the world around them doesn't really make sense. And so it's actually easier for someone to believe that there's a malevolent force that is causing things to happen to you that 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 don't work out very well than it is to simply believe that life is really difficult and that people are really incompetent right i mean when 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 you when you go to the the fast food place and they're taking a really long time to get your food you can either think you know what? I, I think that it's that guy back there doesn't like me. So he's, he's slowly making all this stuff because last time I, I, you know, didn't comment on how nice his hat was or something like, I mean, whatever. Um, but the more likely the reality is he's just really slow at his job. You know, now look, that doesn't mean that there's, there aren't actual conspiracies that have happened throughout time. There have been, but the reality is that for most of them, they unravel pretty quickly. The whole point of a conspiracy is you need multiple people involved in order to carry it out. The problem with involving more than one person in your conspiracy is yeah. that people, people talk. Lab. Well, yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> it's it's like the old uh, the old saying about, you know, uh, how do you keep a secret between three people? You kill the other two. <laughs> um, I'm not advocating that. I'm just saying that now that's something the Illuminati would say. Now Garrett Dirkmott's part of the Illuminati. And I would, I would say as well it, that possibly one of the things that might have been referenced or thought of rather than maybe the Illuminati is the Freemasons. Yeah. And that is something that we talked about. Uh, Freemasons part one, part two, that was in uh, March of last year, March 31st of last year and April 7th of last year. So we know that that's one of the things that that does come up as it relates to the temple. And so if you were to go to listen to those episodes, um, they might be able to provide you some additional context of things that you might be hearing from from folks. Anyway, thank you so much, Elder Whipple. And uh, we are now going to move to our primary topic, although 
I like this. These are both uh, kind of related. They're talking about authority. Yes. So this one, uh, this one comes to us from Neil. Uh, Dr. Dirkmont, I see that uh, Professor Richard LeDuc is not mentioned here. I think he's really only speaking to me. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I recently found your podcast and I'm hooked. I'm proud to say that I'm your first listener from Minnesota. If what you said during the Mormon Battalion episode is correct, I recently ran into an extreme anti. And by the way, so th- this goes on, but I will say, so in the pre-show on this is, and by pre-show, um, uh, you know. We don't have a pre-show. There's no way to download it. Um, uh, but uh, what he means is as we sat down minutes before we started recording to say, hey, which one of these emails should we respond to? That's what he means by the pre-show. We, we read the, the extreme anti, and, and the question is of a serious nature, and we will we promise to get to that. But it conjured in our mind, what is, what is an extreme anti? And what we came up with is essentially someone who is an anti-Mormon, but also really into X Games. Yeah, an X Games anti-Mormon. That's right. Yeah. So, so we talked about, you know, maybe like he's jumping out of a helicopter to ski down a mountain on a snowboard or, or board down a mountain yelling, you know, Solomon Spaulding or something yeah, along yeah, those that, lines. He's, he's, uh, he's doing uh, 360s <laughs> off of moguls while he's yelling like, how can we don't know more about the first vision? You know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> I mean, we, 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 we actually were cutting promos for the yeah. Extreme Anti. Right, like he's got Tony Hawk on as a yeah. guest. <laughs> that, that, talking about it like, you know, that, that you know, I'm not going to just talk about one Mormon conspiracy theory. I'm going to talk about two. I'm not going to just talk about three. It's not going to be a 720. It's going to be a 1440. <laughs> you know, I'm going around four times. Anyway. Um, but yeah, this, this idea of an extreme uh, uh, anti. Extreme anti. It conjured up that image. It was very funny to us. So we, Sponsored by Mountain Dew. That's right. We have we have Garrett who does the, the raspy anti-Mormon <laughs> who's who's on his, his eighth pack of cigarettes <laughs> on what else yeah. is church hiding from yeah. you? Yeah. You know what? Uh, you know they're they're not going to tell you about how, how come we didn't hear about the fact there's more than one, yeah. <laughs> right? And now we have extreme anti that's uh, talking about having uh, Sean White on next week to talk about uh, how many guns Willard Richards had. Anyway, oh man, <laughs> how many guns Willard Richards have? Let's talk about the Illuminati. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. boy, yeah, the conspiracy runs so deep. All right, so uh, ran into an extreme anti. Trying to ex- uh, to claim that Joseph the, the Joseph Smith papers shows that there is no evidence for the restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood. I don't find him at all credible because he kept trying to conflate it with the restoration of the Aaronic priesthood. However, it did make me think you'd probably know a thing or two about it, and it would be an interesting topic for an episode or two. Keep up the good work, Neil. I'm always a little troubled when people invoke the Joseph Smith papers um, to say that, well, the Joseph Smith papers proved this. It's actually become a real talking point among among uh, antagonistic people because that way they feel like they can demonstrate that. Oh, I'm not. I'm not just going to like some blog. Which, first of all, yes, you are right because you didn't read. Every single volume of the Joseph Smith papers. And by every single volume, you mean one word. I mean, even, did you even open the front? Did you see the frontispiece <laughs> of the. Uh, well, so they did the same thing with Rough Stone Rolling, right? They, yeah. they tried to use that as, as some well, sort yeah, of. Well, and, and I mean, in, at least in Rough Stone Rolling's case, 
they could say, here's, uh, you know, because it talked about Joseph Smith using a seer stone to translate, right? Which we have multiple podcasts on that. If you're wondering, you can go back to the beginning. We have multiple podcasts. Um, and it was the fact that people hadn't heard of that before was was what was being used. The fact that it was was not known. But with the Joseph Smith papers, it, it's a much more this claim of, uh, oh, I, you know, even the church is admitting that the church isn't true. That kind of <laughs> argument, um, you know, which seems like not not the best sell point. I mean, I I've had that the experience on a couple of occasions, but one in particular, I was speaking at a fireside, and someone came up afterwards and pretty condescendingly and angrily to, I mean, it was obvious that he was very antagonistic from the, I don't know why he was there. I mean, got to have something better to do on a Saturday night than that. Right. I mean, I don't know. I mean, anyway, um, and you could at least watch the anti-Mormon X games. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to do a 720 mogul off of this while I figure out where Solomon Spaulding's <laughs> manuscript is. Um, <laughs> Anyway, he came up and he said, um, uh, you know, I've just got a real problem with some of the stuff you're saying because, and then he went to quote something and he's like, and, and that's what the Joe Smith paper says. The Joe Smith paper says that, that, that this isn't even true. And I was like, well, well, that's not in the Joseph Smith papers. And he's like, no, it is. It's in there. It's in there. It's in there. And I said, it's, it's not in there. And then he got even more angry. He's like, no, I know it's in there. And, and so I... I mean, I kind of had to pull rank a, a little bit. I was like, well, the volume you're talking about, I wrote. <laughs> and so I know that it's not in there. So it, it's not. We can pull it up right now that's, and you won't find it in that's there. A, and That's a good flex. Well, that's pretty, see, I feel bad even saying no, it. it's Now so everybody great. listening no, is no, no, like, hold on, hold I on. used to respect Garrett and now I don't. No one ever said that. Here's the thing. <laughs> Here's the thing that's that I love. So my wife's favorite thing is when Garrett's ire gets up. Like like she doesn't like passive Garrett. She likes that now he's been he's been provoked. She likes angry Garrett. Yeah, she likes Elijah calling down fire, Garrett. <laughs> I don't do that. Elijah I'm, I'm the Tishbite calling down fire. Anyway, yeah. Well, so he went on to say he he said no. Well, I mean I, I know I've read it somewhere, and I was like I have no doubt. <laughs> That you read it somewhere, but but you're claiming that you read it from some authoritative source. And, and I mean, I, I, look, I understand what the argument is that's being made, but that's not the same thing. I, I feel like one of the more frustrating things for me when I deal with people that are making antagonistic arguments about the history of the church is that they want to have the air of academic you know, credibility to them. They want to talk about sources, but then they want to draw conclusions that aren't in any way academic. And that's what's really frustrating to me because they will invent a standard and then already knowing that that standard doesn't fit the the the, the topic we're talking about, turn around and say, see, I told you it's not real. I mean, you have this with people who talk about the first vision. How, I don't know how many times I've heard people say things like, I mean, obviously, I mean, if I saw God and Jesus, I would have immediately written about it and told people about it. Do you realize what's even coming out of your mouth? 
You're, you're trying to tell me that you know what you would do if Jesus appeared to you right now. Well, unless that's already happened, and I don't really think we have either Phil Davis or Denver Snuffer listening, well, you don't actually know. I know what you think. I mean, to me, when someone talks about what they would have done if they had a vision is like uh, after I had my fourth child listening to someone who's not yet married uh, criticizing the parenting of other people, right? <laughs> they're, they're getting married like, well, we're never going to, we, we've already decided we are never, ever, ever, ever going to let our kids ever do this. And uh-huh. Angie and I would look at each other and be like, huh, you know, we'll see how that works out for you. <laughs> okay, can I call you in like, I don't know, the week after you have your first baby? Can I, <laughs> can I call you and we'll see? Let's compare notes and find out whether that's the case. Anyway, um, this is a really it, this is an important topic, obviously, because the church is uh, claiming that that priesthood authority was both lost from the earth, and then the important aspect of this is that it was restored. You certainly aren't going to find anywhere in the Joseph Smith papers that says this proves that there was no restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood. So, in that regard, that person's being somewhat dishonest. This is where assumption is such a key, important thing um, that sometimes we assume things to be the case and we and then we give them an assumed importance. And then what we're really upset by is not is not the actual event. It's the assumption that was made. And, th- and that's a great example uh, with the first vision. I mean, so. I might have assumed that there was only one account of the first vision, the one I quoted on my mission all the time to tell people about. I had never heard of any other accounts, so it's an obvious, natural assumption to assume that he only said it one time. When I learn that there's other accounts, what's the next assumption I make? I make an assumption, well, obviously, every single time that story was told, it was word for word, because that's how I've been memorizing it on my mission. Now, that sounds like it's a logical assumption, but it also doesn't follow the the historical methodology. Historians do not expect someone talking about an event four, five, six, seven, eight different times in their life use exactly the same words and include all the same information. that's That's an inaccurate assumption. In this case, one of the assumptions is made is that when these miraculous events happened, that there was a scribe sitting there who chiseled it into stone, you know, a scribe, you know, with a hammer and, and a chisel, chiseled the date into stone, chiseled the event into stone, and that that would be the proof that it happened. Think about this as in terms of religious miracles. If the argument is that we don't know the exact date of the Melchizedek priesthood restoration, and therefore it's not true. So, So the first part is true. We don't know the exact date of the Melchizedek priesthood restoration. But the conclusion that you draw from that, what if we applied that to the rest of Christianity? Why don't you let me know what day Jesus was born? Oh, you don't know? In fact, do you even know what year Jesus was born? When did the angel come to Elijah? No, no, no. Don't give me some estimated year. I want to know what time of day the angel came on the exact day and the exact month. 
oh, you don't know that? Well, clearly Elijah didn't even exist. I mean, the 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 standard that someone making that claim is is asking you to apply is a standard that they would never apply to their own religious beliefs. What day was it, day, month, and year, when Jesus appeared to Paul or to Saul on the road to Damascus? Well, if you don't know that, then that means it didn't happen. Now, maybe you're dealing with someone who's an atheist, and they'd say, yeah, yeah, it didn't happen. But if you are dealing with an atheist, there's some great questions to ask them too. Okay, so you can only believe in things that you can prove. Yes, okay. Only th- the only things you can believe are things you can prove. All right, wonderful. Explain to me dark matter and dark energy. Uh, well, I can't, oh, okay. But literally, the theory of your universe does not exist without those things existing. These two things that you can't measure, that you can't isolate, that you can't replicate, that you can't explain, but the universe would not exist at all if it didn't work. I mean, it, like, the, the reality is, whether you're an atheist, a Christian, or you're a Latter-day Saint, there are beliefs that you have to take on some type of faith that you can't prove them. And we, we talked about this before, about how we can know what happened in the past, back to our early original podcast, in fact. And so miracles are not able to be proven or disproven on the basis of whether or not, I mean, Let's ask the question another way around. Do you think the extreme anti, as he went over another mogul and did a a, a 360 (laughs) shouting, Melchizedek Priesthood, do you think if we had the exact date of the Melchizedek Priesthood restoration That's the thing that's keeping him back. Do you think then he would be a believer? That he's like, oh yeah, gold plates, I'm all in. Angel appearing multiple times to Joseph, absolutely. John the Baptist, of course, because we have the date. Oh, we don't know when Peter, James, and John came? I'm, I'm out. out. Yeah, I mean, it, it's actually, it's in many ways, I, I feel like it's a very manipulative claim, right? Because the the argument makes it sound like this is such a big deal, that's the reason why I don't believe when in fact, it obviously isn't. He doesn't know the dates of any of the major miraculous uh, events in Christian history, and that doesn't stop him from believing in Christ. Doesn't have him going to a Baptist church and making videos about how they're all worshiping some false Jesus because they don't know when he was born. So it's important to to, to understand that. Now let's talk about what, what we have and why this is a controversy. So... In order to do this, I'm going to have to get very boring. Yeah, that's that's kind of it's on brand. Yeah. So when I say I'm going to have to get, yeah, yeah, that suggests that we haven't been yeah. for the last 34 okay. minutes. Maybe I should tell that story at this point. Okay. So it's important to understand that much of what we understand about church history as as a as a laity as as a general membership of the church, um, especially before the saints volumes came out. Much of that stems from what we knew from the history of the church, right? I, you know, those multicolor little paperback ones, you probably, your grandpa's got them on the shelf there. And um, so it's important we understand that source, I think. But even that source, right, that's not our source for uh, when, when John the Baptist came to Joseph Smith. 
Joseph doesn't write down when John the Baptist came to Joseph Smith. Joseph doesn't say, oh, here's the exact date. We know it because later, Oliver Cowdery wrote a letter to the church in which he stated the day that John the Baptist returned and gave him the priesthood. That's how we know that it's May 15th. Now, of course, what if Oliver Cowdery was wrong? Like, what if it was a typo? You know, what if what if he actually said 11 and they wrote a 5 down? I mean, all kinds of things like that are, are possible, but that's, that's how we know that date. But we don't have, in the history of the church, we don't have an account of... You know, there we were, and then Peter and James and John came, and they and they gave me the priesthood. So I think that what they're making as a reference is the history of the church does not specifically describe that experience of Peter, James, and John coming and restoring the Melchizedek priesthood. Well, that there's some good reasons to understand that. Let's talk about what the history of the church is. I know I've talked about this before, but this is such an important concept, especially when you're dealing with someone who's claiming that your history is flawed or that you don't know your history. You need to know what the source is that you're even talking about. After the the debacle in Kirtland and at the beginning of the debacle in Missouri, um, there's a reason why Joseph Smith history in your scripture starts out with owing to the many false reports, um, especially after the violence that was enacted in Missouri. It became even more clear that Latter-day Saints needed to tell their own story, that we couldn't simply rely on other people to tell our story for us because those people were not going to be honest uh, purveyors of that information. In fact, you might say that that's the reason why we're even doing this podcast um, is because our friend Brady, you know, essentially said, well, you need to do this because we need to get our own story out there. And I know that there's many other wonderful Latter-day Saints doing podcasts to try to do the same thing. But in the absence of getting your own story out, what do you get? You get... You get guy going down the moguls claiming, I'll bet he couldn't even have lifted the plates, you know, as he's going over, I mean, uh, doing a 360. Um, and so they, they decide we've got to get our own story out. They've tried multiple times to write a history of the church, and it hasn't turned out very well. Uh, John Whitmer is, the, is assigned you know, to be the church historian, and he will write a history, but he will actually apostatize before that history is published. And in fact, the church will ask to have it back because he wrote it, you know, under the auspices of the church. And then he refuses to give it back. Um, and so another person, John Coral, writes a history. He also apostatizes. There's kind of a theme here. Seems like these historians. Yeah, we're on our way out. Interesting. Interesting. I'm a business PhD. It doesn't I'm say fine. anything. You know what? I don't know of a single business PhD from the Joseph Smith era who apostatized. Neil K. Whitney? Solid as a rock. Well, it wasn't a business PhD. Well, but he was a businessman. Oh, okay. oh, we're just going off a businessman. I know lots that apostatize then. <laughs> um, you, you've jumped. You, you really overshot <laughs> jumped it. The shark. Yeah, yeah, jumped your shark. Anyway, um, uh, so they start to craft another one. This is sometimes called the 1838-1839 history because that's when they start working on it. And it is a comprehensive thing that's primarily compiled by different scribes. Eventually, eventually, Willard Richards is going to take over the primary role of compiling this history and then starting to get it ready for print. 
And they're going to start publishing that history in 1842 in the Times and Seasons in Nauvoo. So they're working on this history, and then they start to serially, which sounds better tasting than it is, um, they start to serially publish it in the newspaper, every issue publishing portions of that history. So how do they create that history? Well, as, as Mormon might tell you, in order to create a history, you need documents. Like, unless you're just going to go off of oral interviews, which you certainly can, and you can create an oral history, you need documents. Let me give you an example of how you know different the documents are from the early Joseph Smith era to the later Nauvoo era. Documents Volume 1 that uh, uh, myself and, and, and Michael McKay worked on, uh, along with some others um, for uh, the Joseph Smith Papers Project, that covered all of the earliest documents of Joseph Smith. And it spanned a time, uh, including the introduction, those documents, of 1827 to mid-1831, all in one volume. Why? Well, because there's not very many documents from that period. There's just not very many at all, which means the further back you get in Latter-day Saint history, the fewer documents there are to write that history. I'm assuming that Mormon had a few more records on his current war with the Lamanites than he did with Nephi's first war with the Lamanites, right? Because over the course of time, things might be lost. We know that some things were not readily available to Mormon because of words of Mormon, right? After he's already done abridging the first part of the Book of Mormon, he then finds Nephi's small plates and, you know, must have slapped his head. And like every historian who finds something after they've already published, great. But it's already in pre-production. I mean, he's already etched yeah, these He's got the Book of Lehi, so I'll just throw it in. <laughs> no, no I'm like, I've already got my part, fine, but I'll just I'll put it with this other part. So we know that, look, it, it's not just some easy thing that he's, you know, co- he, he's collecting records, and that means he's at the mercy of whatever records he has. It's very obvious that in the early portions of the, ch- the history of the church, that they don't have very many records. In fact, the primary record they have is the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants. If you read the early history of the church, it kind of, it's like a, almost like a little Doctrine and Covenants commentary. It jumps from, uh, uh, from Revelation to Revelation to Revelation, at times leaving out months at a time. You don't have those kind of jumps in the later church history. In the later church history, you're getting an almost daily rendition of what Joseph's doing. Why? Well, at that point, Joseph has a journal, and they're using his journal. They, Joseph has dozens of letters, and they're using his letters. There are newspaper publications, and so when they want to put in a report about how Orson Pratt's doing on his mission, they put in what he wrote to the newspaper. But early on, they don't really have very many documents. Now, clearly some things were dictated by Joseph. I mean, that's how you're getting the, the, the first vision accounts. I mean, I'm pretty sure that nobody has any idea what the angel said to Joseph, except Joseph, right? So there's some places where you can only get that from Joseph. Nevertheless, there are many 
many events in early church history that we know happened because we now have other sources or because people like Lucy Mack Smith will talk about it that aren't actually in the history of the church. Now that history was compiled and, and then, like I said, they began to publish it in, in Nauvoo. And that history, it was originally history of Joseph Smith, and then it continued on with history of Brigham Young. That would eventually all be published as the history of the church. And that's the, the B.H. Roberts compilation that you all have. So Joseph Smith history, history of Joseph Smith, Brigham Young history, history of the church, they're all the same document. They're all this, this collection that was, uh, this, this history that was created in 1838 and 39, and then continually being written on even up until Joseph was murdered and then continued to, to write on it on into the Utah period, trying to, to you know, catch up to those, to those time periods. Because they were using the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants as a kind of as a guide, as their primary document, there is a big gap in that early history. That gap comes between July of 1829 and March of 1830. Let me just demonstrate that for you by going to the manuscript history of the church. Now, there aren't exact dates that are even written in here, even even in the manuscript history. But this is the last thing that is written concerning 1829. Meantime, our translation drawing to a close, we went to Palmyra, Wayne County, New York, secured the copyright, and agreed with Mr. Egbert Grandin to print 5,000 copies for the sum of $3,000. So that's clearly the negotiations to print the, the Book of Mormon. We know that that happened in August of 1829 through multiple other sources, including Martin Harris's mortgage that he mortgages in order to pay for the printing of the Book of Mormon that he mortgages to Granite. He mortgages his farm. So that's August of 1829, and it's, all right, we're working on the translation. It's time to print the book. What is the next entry? Now, now there is a, you know, Joseph has a little aside there because he's talking about the printing of the Book of Mormon. He says, you know, I should here state, you know, and he begins to talk about where the title page of the Book of Mormon comes from. But that still all seems to be in that same August 1829. The very next narrative entry is this. A commandment of God and not of man to Martin Harris given Manchester, New York, March 1830, by him who is eternal. So we went from the Book of Mormon, not not even, they haven't even started printing it yet. We just talked to Grandin, hey, is there any way that you can do this? Fine, I'll charge you a lot of money. To the Book of Mormon's published, and Martin Harris, because the way this was couched was originally that Martin Harris was upset that he couldn't he couldn't get the, the copies of the Book of Mormon to sell. Now, I should incidentally say that's DNC 19, and that has now been redated because we have other sources that 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 date it to 1829 that they weren't using to write the history of the church back then. So um even the even the fact they jumped back in in March of 1830 is is because of this revelation that's actually misdated. Um, but it's also when the Book of Mormon's available for publication. Now, does that mean that literally nothing happened between August and March. August 1829 and March. Well, we know a lot of things happened. We actually know that Joseph Smith received 
revelations that aren't published in the Doctrine and Covenants. We know, I mean, one of the greatest stories of the of the translation, which we know is a big deal, is that they're they're printing the Book of Mormon in Grandin's print shop, and uh, they only work on you know the, the the regular you know days, and they certainly don't operate it on the Sabbath because that would be violating the Sabbath. Well, Abner Cole, a local justice of the peace and a local uh, uh, lawyer, he's advertised quite a bit in the Palmyra Register um, as for his legal services. He starts his own newspaper called the Palmyra Reflector. He uh, uses as a pseudonym Obadiah Dogberry, which ah, that's quite the gnome yeah, de plume. Yeah. Oh, yes. If 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 any if anyone would like a, a gnome de plume, you know Obadiah Dogberry is now available. I think since uh, since uh, although I'm sure on some anti Mormon website there's a ton of people that are Obadiah Dogberry. You know what? I'm going to check that out as soon as we're done recording. Um, he decides that one of the ways that he can really gin up some some sales for his his nascent paper is here he is in Granite's print shop. He's there on nights and weekends, and all around him are the drying sheets of the Book of Mormon that's being printed there during the day. Well, everyone's anticipating this. I mean, this is something that's been in the neighborhood. People have been talking about for years now, and now they know that it's really being printed because Grandin's actually doing it. And so... Cole decides he's going to co- he's going to he's going to capitalize on all of that that you know all of the excitement surrounding the publication of the Book of Mormon, and he begins copying some of these drying pages into his newspaper, and then printing them. So the first printed words of the Book of Mormon that many people saw were actually in this antagonist newspaper. Well. Uh, it, it's actually a, a great story, I believe I've told before on the podcast, where Hiram Smith feels uneasy about something and on a Sunday goes down to the print shop, even though we all know how bad that will look. I mean, already you believe in that gold Bible and now you're out with the print shop on a Sunday. They find Abner Cole stealing these portions of the Book of Mormon and they confront him and he refuses to do anything about it. Well, Lucy Mack Smith explains in her book that you know, they send for Joseph and Joseph immediately comes up, takes a stage to come up, which is really expensive to get up there to challenge uh, Abner Cole to say, hey, I have a copyright for this. You can't just print this. Um, so now we know this all happened. In part, we know it happened because we have copies of the Palmyra Reflector that are, pu- we have those, they exist that are publishing portions of the Book of Mormon. We have Lucy uh, Smith, who's talking about it, saying, this is what happened. It's a really big deal, something that nearly derailed the entire publication of the Book of Mormon process. And there is not a word of it in the book in, in the uh, uh, history of the church because it happened in probably January of 1830 and there's nothing that's covered between August of 1829 and March of 1830. They go to Canada to try to secure a copyright for um, uh, the, the Book of Mormon in Canada. And they do that in the winter as well. There's no mention of that. The reality is the entirety passes, passes over in silence. You go from August 1829 to March. Now, why did I make a big deal of saying that? Well, 
it's incredibly likely that that was the time period in which Peter, James, and John would have appeared and given Joseph Smith that authority. Now, again, the antagonist is going to say something like, well, don't you think they would have written that down? Well, uh, again, you're now arguing from the absence of evidence and that it stands to reason. They would not have thought that they were leaving out the story of Peter, James, and John. Why? Well, because what is in the history of the church? The entirety of Doctrine and Covenants section 27. And that's not the first place that Peter, James, and John are mentioned, of course, because what's recorded in the history of the church is the words of of John the Baptist and that experience. And John the Baptist says that he's acting under the authority of Peter, James, and John. So there you get the first introduction of Peter, James, and John right there in the history of the church. And then they they will eventually copy in the entirety of DNC 27. And I'm just going to read a portion of that where it says, I will drink of the fruit of the vine with you on earth and with Moroni, whom I have sent unto you to reveal the Book of Mormon containing the fullness of my everlasting gospel to whom I've committed the keys of the record of the stick of Ephraim, and also with Elias, to whom I've committed the keys of bringing to pass the restoration of all things, or the restorer of all things spoken of by the mouth of all the holy prophets since the world began, concerning the last days, and also John, the son of Zacharias, which Zacharias he, Elias, visited and gave promise that he should have a son, and his name should be, called, should be John. And he should be filled with the spirit of Elias, which John I have sent unto you, my servants, Joseph Smith Jr. and Oliver Cowdery, to ordain you unto this first priesthood, which you have received, that you might be called and ordained even as Aaron. And also Elijah, unto whom I've committed the keys of the power of the turning of the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children of the fathers, that the whole earth may not be smitten with a curse. And also with Joseph and Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, your fathers, by whom the promises remain. And also with Michael or Adam, the father of all, the prince of all, the ancient of days. And also with Peter and James and John, by whom I have sent unto whom I have sent unto you, by whom I have ordained you and confirmed you to be apostles and special witnesses of my name. And bear the keys of your ministry, and of the same things which I revealed unto them, unto whom I have committed the keys of my kingdom, and a dispensation of the gospel for the last times, and for the fullness of times, in the which I will gather together in one all things, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, and also with all those whom my Father hath given me out of the world. Wherefore, lift up your hearts and rejoice. So that's a pretty full account of that experience. You get an explanation that Peter, James, and John have come and what that ordination was, that they were ordained and confirmed to be apostles and special witnesses to bear the keys of the ministry. And what are those keys? The, the, the keys of the kingdom, the dispensation of the gospel for the last times, the fullness of times in which God will gather all things together. I mean, this this is a pretty extensive, it's actually more expansive than the explanation we get about John the Baptist. I mean, what he's giving us. And this is, in, this is in August of 1830? Well, this is in the history of the church 
when they put into uh, 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 this revelation, which is DNC 27, that's where they place it in the history okay. of the church, right? So, um, so you have um, that revelation being copied in. And so it's speaking after the fact, right? So I gave you this. Now, very interestingly, one of the apostate groups uh, that would form after Joseph Smith was murdered, and I know people want us to do a whole thing on the succession. We received a lot of emails on yeah. succession. Uh, essentially, I, I don't know if it's because everyone's looking for a better option, or I don't know what's going on, but we've had a lot of people say, hey, what's, you know, can you talk about this, this secession uh, crisis? And, and um, we plan to do that. We will, we will at some point, should I commit to this? You should. This this one this one is a it's a very popular topic that people want to understand after Joseph Smith passes away, what, what, happens, what happens in that in that gap. Okay, so we'll talk about the succession crisis at some point in the future, but it is important to 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 note um, Brigham Young is going to uh, refute the idea that that this other apostate group. It's actually William McClellan. Um, He's going to claim that, well, he has more authority because he was ordained to be an apostle first, and that before that he was ordained to the high priesthood, and I don't even know if Brigham Young was ever even ordained to the high priesthood. I mean, it's this whole, you know, I hate to break it to you, but apostates make similar bad arguments then as they do now. So it's, they're all in the X Games, let's put it that way. (laughs) Um, And Brigham Young's going to state, well, Joseph had to be ordained an apostle before the church was founded because only an apostle can, can found Christ's church, right? As this idea. And that's exactly what um, they, they are called to do. They are called in DNC 27, they are, um, they are called to be apostles. By whom I have ordained you and confirmed you to be apostles. One, one thing that is interesting, I know you brought up before, the idea that that Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery would would understand fully what it is that is even going on here as it relates to the Melchizedek versus the Aaronic priesthood. Yeah, and and you know they they likely aren't even using those terminologies. I mean, you'll notice here that they're even saying this first priesthood, and then uh, and then you get this this second uh, 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 effusion of of power, right? Um, we have a very codified understanding of all these things. We we are the product of another 200 years of revelation of prophets being able to clarify, oh, well, this power goes with this. Even Joseph. I mean, you think about this. When, when DNC 27 is revealed, talking about all of those keys that God has restored, well, there aren't bishops yet. Bishops haven't been created in the church yet. That's how early it on it, it is in the church. So, uh, back to the original question. Well, this person's claiming that the Joseph Smith papers prove that there are, there's nothing that says that Peter, James, and John, you know, came. Well, well, that's obviously not true. Um, Doctrine and Covenant section 27 is part of it. Now, Doctrine and Covenant section 27 in that fuller uh, extant version, the earliest we have, uh, the earliest copy we have is, is 1835 possibly 18 late 1834 but that's the earliest copy we have so i could see someone say oh oh really very convenient that it's not written down before then but again we're already dealing with the fact that joseph smith had a first vision that we don't have written down for another or we don't have any records of it for another 12 years 
So it, it's really just one of those, it stands to reason arguments. And, and I always go back to the fact that we are talking about a miracle here. Whether or not Peter, James, and John came is not dependent on whether or not the scribes compiling the history of the church created a narrative for it. Just like whether or not Jesus is the Christ is not dependent upon whether or not the apostles gave enough details about how exactly that stone got rolled away. That's great. It's nice. It'll be wonderful for some Bible trivia when you go to your next divinity school, but it is not the essential aspect of of the Lord. In this case, this is a miracle. I can't, as a historian, replicate Peter, James, and John appearing to Joseph. I can only say that Joseph Smith said that it happened. It apparently happened at some point before the church, uh, before the church was was organized, in this window of time for which our history is essentially silent. Now. Joseph's going to refer to it again. It's not the only time Joseph will refer to it. As you all know, in Doctrine and Covenants section 128, Joseph will again refer to the fact that Peter, James, and John came and committed to them the keys of the kingdom and gave them this apostolic authority. So the argument that someone is making is essentially it's back to the same first vision argument. If they don't have a record of this being said when I think they should have made it, and by me, I'm just saying, well, I just decided, well, then that that proves that it's not true. What can someone say as a historian? A narrative account of the appearance of Peter, James, and John to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery does not exist. They, they don't write out all the things that happened and what that was like. But they certainly are publishing accounts, one of them being a revelation from God explaining that Peter, James, and John came and gave them, made them apostles and gave them that authority. So, I mean, uh, if we look back at our past with an eye to, if I don't have a document for X, that means everyone's lying to me, you know, talk about the Illuminati, right? I mean, the reality is, even if we had a document that says this is what happened, people might not believe. In fact, I would guess that extreme anti-Mormon, you know, after he lands on the 720 from the Mogul, my guess is he doesn't accept Joseph Smith's vision of Moses, Elias, and Elijah in the Kirtland Temple. Now that's written in Joseph's journal. Does that, does that mean that, that that absolutely happened? And if he does accept that as evidence, that as long as it's written down at the time, that makes it true, well, then I guess Joseph's a prophet, and you have to listen to what he says when he writes the letter saying, Peter, James, and John appeared to me. The reality is, it is a specious argument, in part because the person making it doesn't even believe the parameters of debate that they have set up for themselves. The reason why you don't believe Peter, James, and John brought the Melchizedek priesthood isn't because you don't have an early date for it. It's because you don't believe. And if there were 17 different sources stating exactly the date of it, you wouldn't believe it. Or do you believe that John the Baptist restored the Aaronic priesthood? Because we have a date for that, so I guess that makes that one true. 
Um, I know that those things sound like, and, and, and the reason why they're effective is they, they're shocking to people. And so if I can shock someone, then they're like, well, what do you mean? It, it was never written down. And then you do it. Yeah. Don't you think you, you know, don't you think you'd write it down? I mean, don't you think if it was that important, you'd write it down. I, I think the, 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 don't you think, and it stands to reason arguments are arguments that first and foremost start without any faith. We are talking about miracles. We are talking about the savior of mankind being resurrected and saving every person on this earth. Prove me that. Show me that. Before you demand evidence for your miracles, you should probably first realize what the implication of that is. Are you okay claiming that Jesus is not really the Messiah because you don't have a document dated the day he walked out of the tomb? My guess is most Christians aren't willing to go that far. So thank you so much for joining us, and we will talk with everyone again next week. Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.